We will be in Psalm 88. If you, if you grabbed a copy of my notes this morning, I hope as you look at those that you're not overwhelmed by the amount of words on that page. I, honestly, they're probably about the same as normal. But there's just so much in this psalm that I want to be sure to communicate that you may miss. And so I wanted you to have that you can go back and look back to Psalm 88 is an interesting chapter. And we've already said it's not going to be difficult for you to point out or identify the genre that this is. It is a psalm of lament. And from almost the get-go, this psalm just is a tidal wave of emotion and grief and pain. And to be perfectly honest, that's not that unusual for the book of Psalms. I've pointed this out before. But if you, if you look at the genres that we've mentioned that we go through with the kids each week that us adults need to remember too, lament is actually the most prevalent, most common type of psalm in the whole book. In fact, almost one third of all the chapters in the book of Psalms is a song of lament, um, sometimes corporate lament for the people of God or for a nation. Sometimes it's just personal lament, which seems to be the one that it is today. This is the most common genre in the whole thing. And as Jason said, that there, there's actually something uncommon, though, about Psalm 88. And so I just really briefly want to look back at a couple of the lament psalms. I think we've looked at four. This will be the fifth. I'm going to talk about three of them. Psalm 13 is one that we've studied before. If you just kind of keep your finger in Psalm 88 and flip back to Psalm 13, I want to point out just a couple of verses in each of these. Verse 2 is this, you can tell this is the lament part. He says, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? But then in verse 5, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. Flip back to Psalm 3. The very first verse of Psalm 3, the author says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Then in verse 3, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Flip forward to Psalm 39. In verse 5, we certainly see the lament aspect of Psalm 39. The author says, Behold, you have made my days but a few hand breaths. But then in verse 7, he right away responds and says, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. So Psalm 88 is unique in that there's, there's no final declaration of hope to be found in it. In every other psalm, There's this little part in the middle or towards the end where it's like, yeah, this stuff is crushing, but I still have hope. We don't find that in this psalm. There's the author just, he never finds his way back to hope or to praise or to assurance. There's no obvious swing from anguish to confidence here. It's just like lament fills up every verse. C.J. Mahaney is an author and pastor who we were able to hear preach on this text. And so I'm going to borrow some things from him today. If you, if this at all strikes a chord with you, 
I would be happy to recommend his sermon that you can go back and listen to. And it is extremely encouraging. Um, I'll give you just snippets of it, but it would be extremely encouraging for you to listen to. Uh, back in 2017 is when we heard it. And one of the things he said at the beginning was that this psalm begins in despair and ends in darkness. This is, this is not the, the, the typical Sunday morning where you're going to go and get like, Hey, let's just get jazzed up for Jesus. Let's get pumped up. I, I think that we can have that response even in this. But it's, it's not going to be one that you're jumping, shouting from the rooftops probably. However, there's a necessity in this text that every one of us is going to be able to identify with. And that, as we'll talk about, is a reason why it's here. This isn't probably going to be your favorite psalm going forward. In fact, it may not be one you've ever read before. I think that it's important, if nothing else, because of the, the author this is the author is He-Man. Now I'm, I think that you're not actually supposed to say that. I think it's like Haman, but since I was a child of the '80s, I'm going to probably call him He-Man throughout the day. I'm sorry if you hate it. Uh, this text, though, as we read it in just a moment, this this text is going to be possibly confusing, possibly a little depressing, and probably a little bit unsettling. And I, just now that I've totally made you curious about what this is going to say, let's read it together. Psalm 88, and then we'll pray. This is uh, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master according to Mahalath Lianath, a mascal of Heman the Ezraite. Verse 1, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry, out to, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more. For they are cut off from your hand. You've put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You've caused my companions to shun me. You've made me an, a horror to them. I'm shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I I spread out my hands to you. Verse 10. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O oh Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Oh, Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I'm helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused 
my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Let's pray. Lord, we can, we can feel uh, the, the anxiety and the pressure and the despair just being expressed very honestly in these verses. And it's, Lord, maybe not the, the most entertaining thing to hear about on a Sunday morning, but Lord, I think it could be some of the most helpful things that we hear on a Sunday morning. So teach us today by your spirit, Lord. We can, to some degree, every person that's lived a little bit of life here can identify with what this author is saying. And because of that, for that reason, Lord, may we look at this with fresh eyes in a new light, Lord, so that you are glorified in even the pain that we experience. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. This, this psalm, and even as I'm reading it, I get emotional because it's just, you can just feel what's happening. This guy is in darkness. He's despairing. These are tough portions of scripture because we usually like our Bible readings like we like 1990s sitcoms, right? Half an hour long. They all get resolved at the end where everybody hugs and makes up. There's a little bit of laughter along the way. Teach a nice life lesson. And it all just gets this nice bow tied on it at the end of 30 minutes or an hour or however long the show is. We don't get that here. And so it's kind of, there's something in us that sort of like resists it and, and makes it feel strange and foreign to us. But life isn't like a 1990s sitcom in reality. Maybe it was for a while, I don't know, but it's not today. Marital tension isn't resolved in just one conversation where the husband cracks goofy jokes and the wife laughs. That's not, I'm thinking of Tim the Toolman Taylor for some reason, right? Um, <clears throat> marital stress just isn't fixed in 30 minutes, one episode. It's not how life works. Disobedient children don't just magically desire obedience after one talking to, <laughs> right? The results from your tests at the doctor aren't always ones that you can just breathe a sigh of relief after hearing. So I would propose to you that it's actually a good thing that we ha have a psalm like this in the Bible because in one way or another, life is going to drive us to our knees and you will definitely identify with the author in some seasons more than you thought that you would. So what about the author? Well, I've already butchered his name, but... This guy is um, talked about in several places, half a dozen or so in Scripture. In 1 Kings chapter 4, 31, it says that He-Man was a very wise man. Really only almost second to Solomon. Solomon was wiser, but he was a very wise man. 1 Chronicles chapter 6 says that he was the son of one of the men that David put in charge of leading the music in the temple in worship. And he eventually also did the same thing. He was a music leader, a wise music leader in the church. Okay? He, he had a brother who also wrote some psalms. Uh, his name was Asaph. We looked at one of those a couple of weeks ago, a psalm of his. So these guys were gifted in song, 
and faithful leading of the music in the church. Okay? Now, get this. He-Man had 14 sons and three daughters who were all involved in music leading with him. It says that they played the cymbals, the harps, the lyres. So think about this. Knowing a little bit about the author helps us understand this all a little bit better. Think about who this guy was. He was a wise man, talented, musically, accomplished, and he was blessed to have all of those kids. He lived out his days worshiping and leading others in worship in the courts of God right alongside his sons and daughters, and he was a blessed man by all standards, and yet he still knew despair. We're not told why, what was afflicting him, how long it really lasted, though he says from his youth. And at the very end, who was his only friend? Darkness. C.J. Mahaney, in his sermon, he quotes James Montgomery Boyce, who says, It's good that we have a psalm like this. It reminds us that life is filled with trouble, even to the point of despair, even for mature believers. So when life doesn't go as planned, because it never does, when the hopes that we have for our kids or our marriage or our future or whatever it might be, when those hopes come crashing down all around us, this psalm, I pray and hope, will be a blessing because it reminds us that we're not alone. It proves that someone has gone before us that knows what we're dealing with, that knows the depths of despair. And God, in His infinite wisdom, has included this inspired psalm to be read by the church and by Christians and believers, by you and me even today. It is good that we have a psalm like this. And when He begins in verse 1, you can look at that with me. When He starts there, if you just looked at that first line, you might, you might expect to be, have a different tone to the rest of the psalm. He says, O Lord, God of my salvation. That really is the only positive sentence in this whole psalm. Charles Spurgeon says of verse 1 that it's the only ray of comfortable light which shines throughout the whole psalm. So we don't want to ignore this glimmer of hope that we see here or minimize it. If there's going to be something positive, here it is. And even though it might be feeble faith, there's still faith here. There's still faith found in verse 1. The writer here has salvation. He's sure of it. He attributes it to God, who's the author of salvation. And it helps us see that sometimes when darkness is just like all around, when that's all we can feel, we just have to cling to that glimmer of hope. It might be feeble faith, but it's still faith. Something else to note here, even the darkness, even the numbness, the despair was doing something. It was accomplishing something. What is he doing in this whole psalm? What is this? This is his prayer, right? That darkness drove him to prayer. Spurgeon also says his distress, talking about the author here, had not blown out the sparks of his prayer, but instead quickened them into a greater passion till they burned perpetually like a furnace at full blast. And this is the line I want you to hear from Spurgeon today. Evil is transformed to good when it drives us to prayer. So when he uses the word evil there here, 
in that quote, he means what we see as evil, what we see as hard and difficult and terrible stuff happening, it's transformed to good when it drives us to prayer. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 reminds us of this same thing, that the trials that we experience actually have a purpose. And he lists the purpose in James chapter 1. They are this, steadfastness and maturity. This is what trials do. Now in the King James Version, instead of steadfastness, it uses the word patience. So brothers and sisters, you don't have to ask God for patience. He's already teaching it to you in the trials of life. And that's what they produce. There's a purpose in the pain. It's patience and maturity. So here's the question that just was rattling around in my brain. Is it possible for God to accomplish something good in us through suffering? Scripture says yes. Our minds oftentimes say no. Our companions, as in the case of Job, oftentimes say no. Must have been something that you did, Job. Is it possible for God to accomplish something good in us through suffering? It does, and it does it by teaching us patience and perseverance. And when it drives us to prayer and to further maturity, God is doing something in the pain. Now remember, Psalms were written as songs. Can you imagine singing a song like Psalm 88 in church? There is a, a, a lack of lament psalms, songs that we sing. But can you imagine singing a song like this? Last week, we looked at Psalm 145, right? And it was really well-organized, well-thought-out writing. Remember, it was written in an acrostic as a poem. This psalm is way different. If that was organized and everything in its place and very specific and methodic and laid out, this is just like, like all coming out. It's very different. This is just like heartache and pain being almost like if you had an ink stand, it's just like it's spilled out onto a piece of paper. That's what this psalm is like. It's not organized. And after this feeble display of faith in verse 1, which isn't insignificant, it's just small, the author moves to the theme that we find in the rest of the chapter, and it's trouble, despair, hopelessness, friendlessness, darkness. He is crying out to God, and it doesn't seem like he cares who's hearing him, who's listening. Mahaney in his sermon also says, the psalmist is not presenting us with some carefully edited version of himself. If you met this guy and you heard what he was saying, you would immediately discern that he is desperate. He is crying out in despair. He's not composed. And I wonder, can you relate? Does your prayer time ever look like this? Let me just give you this encouragement if you find that it is. Your prayer time doesn't have to be perfectly organized. You know, last week we looked at that acronym of ACTS. That's a great way to go about prayer, but your prayer time's not always going to look like that. And that's okay. 
You don't have to use all of the, the right words and talk to God in the right tone of voice and in just the right way. There's going to be, there's going to be tears sometimes. There's going to be crying. There may be periods of sobbing, of speechlessness where we don't even know what to say. Don't you, don't you think, though, that you can sh- go ahead and show God that not carefully edited version of yourself and that he'll still love you? You don't need to, sh- to only show your church family that side of you either. We weren't designed to take on everything that this world has to throw at us alone. I've said this before. I'll say it again. We're better together. The author here, he wasn't holding anything back in this prayer to the Lord. It was a passionate cry. It says that he cried out and it was constant. It says day and night he's saying these things. To paraphrase another commentator, it said, uh, despair sometimes makes you silent in prayer and sometimes makes you very eloquent in prayer. Sometimes we don't know what to say and sometimes we just can't stop talking to the Lord, asking him to fix it or to change us or to help, to save us. So the author starts by crying out to God in the first couple of verses, and then verses 3 through 5, he goes on to explain the depths of what he's feeling. He talks about how he's full of troubles, his life is close to death, he's counted as those who are already dead, he feels. And no matter how long that you've lived, at some point, you've reached what we would describe as rock bottom. You guys have heard that term before, right? We have reached rock bottom. And whether that's a result of your own sin and disobedience, as oftentimes it is, or whether that's just the experience of life, we've come to that point where we've hit rock bottom. And maybe you feel that way today. Maybe that's right now. If you're hearing and listening to this, maybe you're feeling like you're at rock bottom right now, where everywhere you turn is just another fire you have to put out. Every corner is heartache and difficulty, and trouble. And if, you f- if it lasts any longer, you feel like it's, you're going to die. Like you might die from everything. You might even feel like you've been cut off from God himself. This, these are the human emotions that we sometimes don't like to talk about, especially in the church, but that are real, and, y- and y'all know it. And these are the things that the author here is feeling and expressing in verses 3 through 5. He has hit rock bottom. Look at verse 5. He says, like those who you remember no more, what worse place in life can you be than your creator, the God who made you and saved you, doesn't remember you anymore, doesn't acknowledge your existence. You've heard it said that the opposite of love is not hate, it's apathy, it's indifference. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but in a lot of ways it can be. There are a lot of things that He-Man is talking about here, and he is just full of what is just common to us in human emotion. And he begins now in verses 6 and following to suppose where all of this is coming from. All of this pain and heartache, he thinks he's got a, a handle on it. He says it comes from God. Look at verse 6. You have put me in the depths of the pit. 
Verse 7, your wrath lies heavy upon me. You overwhelm me with all of your waves. Verse 8, you have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. The author has concluded at this point that God must be angry with him or upset or doesn't like him anymore. And that's why he's experienced this kind of intense sorrow and pain and despair. Remember, this is what Job's friends counseled him about, saying, surely it's your sin that is the problem here, when it wasn't. So I want to be clear about something in all of this, that I think it's true that this has been caused by God, allowed by God, brought about by God, however you want to say that, but it's not an expression of God's wrath against him. This pain and difficulty is not an expression of God, God's wrath on the author. And in our lives, it's not always an expression of wrath to us either. Now, sometimes, certainly, it's discipline. Sometimes, certainly, it's God steering us through pain and difficulties back to His path. But not always, as we'll see here. There's no evidence... Especially in chapter 88 here, that this is uh, trouble that He-Man has brought on Himself. This is not a sign of God's disapproval at all. And it brings to light something that I think we're all very prone to when when we experience suffering and heartache. C.J. Mahaney points out that the Puritans called these things hard thoughts about God, wrong thoughts about Him that often plague us in the midst of suffering. And I'm guessing... Again, with some pretty good knowledge of the human condition in my own heart, I'm guessing that you can relate to this as well. When we reach rock bottom, we start to think hard thoughts about God. Think back to the last time you would consider yourself at rock bottom, in despair, in the pit, feeling cut off from the hand of God, trouble at every turn. You're tempted to think hard thoughts about God. To think that maybe God is angry with you or punishing you for something. Maybe you begin to think and act and believe that God maybe doesn't love you anymore. Maybe that God doesn't care or possibly even that God isn't even real. That he doesn't even really exist. These are hard thoughts. Author Sinclair Ferguson said something that I think is very insightful here. He said, The most sinister thoughts that Satan insinuates into our minds are not enticements to sin, but suspicions about God himself. These suspicions about God are the hard thoughts that the Puritans were referring to. And I bet most of you, if not all of you, can identify you've felt these thoughts creeping up in your own minds as well. Suffering has a way of distorting the truth about who God is. Pain, trouble, has a way of distorting the truth about who God really is. And so it's best to be planted on firm footing before our world is rocked. And that's why we teach kids at VBS. Parents, that's why you train them. Because as you get older, it seems like life gets harder, right? And so when we plant them on firm foundation of the gospel and on its word, they won't be devastated when trouble and sorrow and pain and despair comes their way because they have some kind of filter to see it all through. 
But if you feel like this is you, if your world is being rocked and you don't know and you're maybe thinking hard thoughts about God today and questioning his presence in your life, I pray and I think that Psalm 88, God's word in general, can kind of recalibrate your way of thinking. And I hope that it will today. Now, the psalmist, as we just read through those verses, you can see that he feels like he's actually not just been neglected by God. That was a thought. He's been cut off, forgotten maybe. But here he's supposing maybe actually God is attacking him. Maybe God is attacked or abandoned him altogether. Maybe somehow both. He's hurt. He's confused, and so he's rattled, if you will, and maybe he begins not thinking straight. In verse 9, he goes on to say, Every day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. He's desperate, you guys. He's not coming with any other reason but just to to be loved on by God. He says, I, I spread my hands out to you. And then in verses 11, 10, 11, and 12, he begins to ask some questions about God, of God. What good is it if I die? Can I praise you still if I'm dead? He's saying, I don't understand what you're, why you're doing this. It seems like it could be the end of me. Now, the author in these verses, he, he mentions some positive things. He mentions God's wonders, rising up to praise him, steadfast love, faithfulness, God's righteousness. He mentions these things in verses 10 through 12. So he, he seems to be remembering some right things about God, but he's questioning, questioning whether or not they still remain true for him in the midst of suffering. Verse 13, he breaks out again into this cry to the Lord, and he says, day by day, morning by morning, he's crying out. His cry comes before the Lord. And then he asks the question, verses 15 and 16, he asks the question that we just kind of jump to pretty quick, that just rolls off of our tongues when we receive pain and heartache. You guys know the question, why? Why do you cast my soul away, he says? Why do you hide your face from me? If, if I had to guess, I would guess that you all adults have prayed those prayers at some point in your life. I've got young kids. Um, many of you have, have young kids or have had young kids. When your kids ask you the question, why, you know as a parent, that they can be, the, the same question why can be asked a multitude of different ways. It can be asked out of genuine curiosity and wanting to understand what's going on, or it can be asked in defiance with no real desire to know the answer. In his sermon, C.J. Mahaney points out another good point right here. He says, how are you asking that question? If you're asking the question to God, why, God, how are you asking that question? Is it a humble cry for understanding or is it an angry and arrogant protest? Wow. Every one of us is going to have this kind of question. Why, O oh Lord, or how long, O oh, oh Lord? I mean, you just have to live long enough and you'll ask those kinds of questions 16 verses 16 through the end of the chapter these expound again on the author's theory that god is attacking him or afflicting him he's maybe even causing the situation to happen to where he ends up alone but in, in reality he says he's not alone in the end 
He says, darkness has become his only companion. Uh, I'm a music guy, so this made me think of Simon and Garfunkel's song. Anybody know where I'm going with this? The Sound of Silence. Sort of captures the idea of how lonely and cold being alone can be. That is really such a depressing song if you read the lyrics to it. But it, it really kind of personifies darkness as an old friend who they're familiar with. That they've come to talk with again. And it's, it's, it's one of their well, most well-known songs. It's been remade countless amounts of times in different genres. The Sound of Silence. Why? Why do you think that is one of their most popular songs? Because we can relate to it. Because people relate to feeling heartache and despair, to feeling alone and like darkness is, in fact, their only friend. Though this concept isn't original to them, they do take it in a direction, I think, that actually can lead to more depression and more despair. Because their solution, if there is one in that song, it doesn't lead to hope in Christ. They've just kind of scratched the surface of human emotion in this regard and put into words what so many people feel, but our author of Psalm 88 does it far better. This is how Psalm 88 ends. It ends in darkness. There's no final swing of hope. There's no glimmer of rescue mentioned, just that his companion is darkness and everyone else is gone. So how does this psalm fit into scripture it is so depressing and sad why is it included in the inspired word of god because brothers and sisters we believe that this is the inspired word of god even this well i hope that we've kind of made that answer a little bit obvious so far but psalm 88 shows that even devoted christians experience suffering despair and darkness even mature believers wrestle with this Sometimes even prolonged seasons of darkness. Now I say devoted Christian because our author here, he wasn't a new believer. It's not like he was caught off guard by what it might look like to follow God. His father was involved in singing in the temple and in worship. And so he was immersed in it from the beginning and yet he still struggled He had wisdom. Remember, he was one of the wisest people underneath Solomon. He still experienced these difficult, wrestled with hard thoughts about God. Now, there's no evidence, if you look back to all of the instances of where He-Man was mentioned in Scripture, there's no evidence to to say that uh, there was some kind of secret sin in his life. Or some kind of hidden thing that this was, you know, God's judgment on him or discipline on him. There's no evidence of that. Psalm 88 shows that these things don't only come about because of a lack of devotion or a lack of Bible reading or a lack of prayer on our part. In fact, if you look through this psalm, this guy was dedicated to prayer. Every morning, he says, he lifted his cry up to the Lord. It's not a lack of prayer that caused the darkness. So let me ask the question that I think we're probably all thinking at this point. Well, if it's not to correct bad behavior or for discipline, why would God bring He-Man through all of this? Why would He bring Him through it? Why would He do this to Him? 
Is it possible that God would bring him through it for you and for me? Now think about that with me. Is it possible that the author here experienced these things and wrote them down so that thousands of years later, when someone like us feels the same way, we have comfort to know that we're not the only one who's ever felt this way? Is it possible that he experienced these things and wrote them down so that when we go through seasons of despair and darkness, this psalm can be like a balm for our souls that are irritated and struggling? Psalm 88 helps us prepare for seasons of suffering. It keeps us from being blindsided when we feel like the author here. There's some context to it. There's some kind of framework that we would have to say, no, God has not left. I might feel this way, just like he did. But I know the truth, because I know God. Again, C.J. Mahaney says, true faith clings to God when his activity in our lives is hidden from us. Our faith in God is most authentic when it holds on to God in our darkest moments. If you can identify with the author of Psalm 88 today, your mindset can be recalibrated by recognizing the true nature of faith in the midst of despair. Because if you'll notice that when we come to verse 18 at the conclusion of this guy's prayer, nothing has changed from the end of verse 1. Have you ever felt that way in your prayer time? I imagine that you have, like me, at some point. You've prayed in earnest, and nothing seems to have changed. The situation just is just as bad. There's no relief in sight. This is how it was for him. He hasn't been comforted in any way. His troubles have not been relieved. His problems have not been resolved. He's still in the pit with darkness as his only friend. Or at least that's how he perceives the situation to be. This reminds me of a psalm that we've already looked at. Psalm 77 says, Your way, talking about the Lord, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. There may be times when using every available metric we have at our disposal, we come to the conclusion that we're alone in the dark. Every passage we read, every prayer we pray, nothing changes, and we just assume and come to that conclusion that nothing will fix this. We're stuck forever. And it seems so eternal, so long-lasting. I hope, if you've lived any length of time, that you also recognize that you can't always trust your feelings. Our feelings don't always paint an accurate picture of the reality of what God says is true. Because as the Israelites were given this psalm in Psalm 77, you might feel the same way, like you are going through the deep water, right? They went through the Red Sea. They went through these difficult things of centuries of bondage and slavery. They went through this stuff, and it looked as though God was not with them because his footprints were unseen. 
But that doesn't mean they weren't real. And though his footprints may be unseen in your life right now, you can rest assured if you are in Christ, he is still leading you. Though his footprints may be unseen. Think about this. Do you think the author here knew that thousands and thousands, tens, hundreds of thousands of Christians over the years would be encouraged and comforted by the words that he was writing here in Psalm 88? This is a very emotional, personal prayer. Now, obviously, we don't know what he was thinking as as this was put into Scripture, but if you wrote a, a prayer out like this, would you want other people to see it? Probably not. And yet, God used this, is using, will use a passage like Psalm 88 to teach and to comfort his people. Is it possible that God may use darkness and suffering in your life to encourage and comfort others around you? Our God can do it. In fact, our God does do it. But he wants to hold us close in those moments as well. And I think he does it through passages like this. This psalm informs us that God hasn't left us with a song to sing in the pit without a song to sing in the pit. God intends to increase our faith in the dark times as well as our love for one another. If you're familiar with suffering yourself, you can especially and uniquely care for others who are suffering now in the church, in the body of Christ. And if you have the impression of the church as a place where you have to you know, give everybody that carefully edited version of yourself that we talked about earlier, if that's how you feel like you need to present yourself at church, you've got the wrong idea of what church is. And if we are making it seem like that's how it needs to be, then we are giving a wrong impression of what church should be. For those who are hurting, but who are really looking for truth, the body of Christ is a group of people who love and support. In your times of darkness, they will be the ones who sit with you in the pain but also remind you of the truth that you're blinded to see at the moment. They may sit with you there, but they won't let you stay there. They will keep pushing you towards a God who restores and is a God who is true and a God who loves. There is purpose in suffering, even though we don't usually see it in the moment, because in God's hands, no pain is wasted. Let me say that again. In God's hands, there's a purpose in your pain. There's a point to the pit. To quote Mahaney again, he says, It might be perplexing, but it's not pointless. It is certainly painful, but it's not pointless. It's not my preference, (laughs) but it's not pointless. There's a divine purpose for each and every pit. The purpose is not always immediately obvious to us. There will be times when we cannot trace his hand. And in those times, we must learn to trust his heart. Let me assure you and encourage you that you can trust the heart of God. You can trust in his goodness. His way, though, is sometimes through the deep waters, right? Where it looks like there is no hope, where it looks like there is no salvation. It looks like there is no goodness. His footprints may be unseen in the moment, but you can be confident that he's not left you, 
because if Christ is in you, it, that's an impossibility. He's still leading. He's still loving. I want to end this morning by just looking at a verse from the book of Lamentations. You can figure out what Lamentations, the genre of that book is just by the title. It covers a lot of the same ground that Psalm 88 covers. Specifically, chapter 3 says in verse 17, he says, My soul is bereft of peace. Like, there's no peace in my soul. Verse 18, he says, My endurance has perished. Sounds familiar, right? Both to Psalm 88 and maybe your own personal life experience. But I want to remind us and close today with verses 21 through 23. Lamentations three twenty one through 23. But this I call to mind. This I call to mind. And therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. In the darkness, in the pain, in the suffering, maybe even prolonged, this is what we hold to. This is what we hold fast to. But brothers and sisters, we're going to sing a song like that in just a moment. It's not that we hold fast to this as much as it is that God holds fast to us. And so when we experience seasons of sorrow, we must cling to Christ. And if you don't have Christ, you endure that sorrow alone and you will feel the same way, like darkness is your only friend. But there's hope even in the darkness in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, this is not easy. This is not always pleasant, God, to, to see and to know that your way is through the deep water. Times in our life where we feel like you have left us. This is not easy, Lord, and yet... We know that your word is truer than our emotions and it teaches us what we need to know. And so, Lord, I pray that you have taught us today that though your way might be through the deep waters, through the pain, through the suffering, Lord, you have not left us on our own. Your footprints are unseen because there's hope in Christ. And so, Lord, may we hold fast to this truth, God. May that be our aim day by day, especially in the pits, Lord, in the depths of despair. Lord, may that be our hope to cling to this hope of Christ. But, Lord, I pray that we would take comfort in knowing that even when we fail to do that well, you will not let go of us. You hold fast to us because of Jesus. Thank you in his name that we pray. Amen.